The Art of Being Human presents podcast on the work of Byron Katie. This episode is part of the Why the Work Works series, which focuses on inspiring, explaining and enhancing your praxis through a theoretical understanding of how the work works. This is Session 3, Creating Meaning, with Ernest Holmes Svensson. For more podcasts on the work of Byron Katie, go to www theartofbeinghuman.dk slash podcasts. And now, session three, creating meaning. Hello. My name is Ernest, and this is episode three of the Why the Work Works series. Our journey into a deeper understanding of how the mind works and how to end suffering. This episode is called Creating Meaning, and it holds the final elements we need to cover before we can dive into understanding the work itself. So far, I've been explaining how the defining characteristic of the human mind is our ability to simulate that which is not based on our unique map of reality. We use this process to create meaning from the stream of sensory input that is constantly washing over us. If a man comes bursting into your office and starts telling you off, it's by referring to your map of reality that you determine whether he is happy or irritated, angry or sad. And when you found your answer, for example that he's angry, the reality you're experiencing, the simulation you're superimposing onto your sensory impressions, becomes a story about him being angry. It doesn't feel like a meaning you're ascribing to him. It doesn't feel like a simulation you yourself are creating or like a story you're superimposing onto anything. It feels just as self-evident as when you see a metal box with four wheels and know that it's a delivery van. But somebody else, standing right next to you, with a different set of structures in her map of reality, won't necessarily perceive him as angry. She might perceive him as hurt, and that would then become her reality. Nobody can say which of you is right. Even for the man himself, it might be difficult to determine exactly which category his emotional state falls under. Maybe he'd describe himself as worried or afraid. It makes no difference for you, though. In your world, you're standing in front of someone who's speaking angrily to you, and it's just as self-evident as seeing a car on the street. That, therefore, is the reality you're going to respond to. Our bodies and our feelings don't react to what's happening outside of ourselves. They don't react to what we call objective reality or to the truth. They react to the reality we experience, the reality we create inside ourselves. Imagine a lemon, a small, compact, yellow lemon. Imagine cutting it into wedges, then picking one of them up, bringing it to your mouth and taking a big bite. Imagine your teeth sinking into the flesh of the lemon and the juice running over your tongue. If you take a moment 
to conjure it up, you'll immediately notice the effect. A slight tension in your jaw and a change in your production of saliva. Changing our production of saliva is not something we have conscious control over. It's not something we can decide to do. If I ask you to increase the amount of alpha amylase you produce or alter the balance of pepsin in your stomach acid, you'll have no idea what to do. As will most of what our bodies spend their time doing, these kinds of changes are unconscious. But the moment you simulate what it feels like to bite into a lemon, they occur instantaneously. Your body isn't responding to so-called external reality. It's responding solely to what's happening in your mind. For your body, your mind's reality is the only reality. It doesn't matter how big and horrifying a monster is standing behind you. If you don't know it's there, you won't be afraid. Just as it doesn't matter how quiet the dog is, if you believe it's going to attack you, you'll be on high alert. This is why, when you're sitting in your favorite chair and replaying the unpleasant conversation you had with a colleague yesterday, it's not only your thoughts that return to the situation. Your emotions do as well. The more deeply you are absorbed in the simulation, the more clearly you feel the same sense of anger, injustice and self-pity, just as if the whole thing was happening right now. And in a sense it is. For your body and your emotions, reality is what is present in your mind. That's what you are reacting to, irrespective of whether it's actually real or not. That's why you get nervous when you think about that important presentation you are giving at work tomorrow, or when your mind turns to the exams you've got next week. You can't think about those things without simulating them, and you can't simulate them without your body and your emotions reacting. Our bodies and our emotions are two sides of the same coin. Anger, love, irritation, happiness, these are all words for the changes our bodies undergo in response to our experiences. Muscular tension, changes in our hormone balance, the release of neurotransmitters, pheromones, endorphins, adrenaline or cortisol, changes in our blood pressure and our cardiac rhythm, these are all parts of a detailed adaption strategy, the body's way of altering our mental and physical state so that we are prepared to handle whatever situation we are facing. We call these changes emotions, and as I said, they only relate to what's happening in our minds. Sometimes, what our minds are filled with is simply make-believe. Like when you're sitting in your favorite chair and replaying a fictional conversation at work, or imagining biting into a lemon. Other times, it has to do with concrete events in your surroundings. Like when a man comes rushing into your office and addresses you in a particular tone. But pay attention to how your simulator is operating in these situations too. Your interpretation of what's going on, against the background of your map of reality, is what shapes your experience. In external reality, a man is simply speaking in a certain tone. In your inner reality, this is perceived as him attacking you and telling you off. It's an interpretation, but your body and your feelings respond to it as if it's reality. This means that two people can be exposed to precisely the same thing 
but respond emotionally in two completely different ways. If, for instance, you're afraid of snakes or enclosed spaces, you'll react completely differently from someone who isn't when you come across a hognose snake or get stuck in a lift. In reality, it's not the hognose or the lift per se that is frightening. It's your beliefs, the inner stories that are woven around them in your map of reality and the associated simulations that scare you. If you're afraid of heights, then it's not the height itself that's scary. It's the images worrying in your inner simulator of what it would be like to fall and get dashed to pieces on the rocks that are making you afraid. Which is perfectly natural. Anyone would be scared if they saw those images and thought that was about to happen to them. It's the same with all other emotional responses. A woman who receives a bouquet of flowers from a man is reacting to more than just the flowers. Just like with the couple who had different beliefs about what respect is. Our feelings are a consequence of our simulations. It's the meaning we ascribe to what's going on that gives rise to our emotions, and this meaning is rooted in our map of reality. When we experience a stressful or so-called negative emotional reaction, it's always simply a natural consequence of what's happening in our mind, an effect of the simulations we have created. What we think of as external reality is like a canvas we paint on, and we can only paint with the colors we have on our palette. So if we want to change our emotional state, we should look to our map of reality. The feeling itself is just the natural consequence of what our nervous system is experiencing as real at any given moment. When I teach, I sometimes ask, how many earnests are here right now? To which most people naturally answer, one. But that's not true. The truth is, as I pointed to in the opening of this series, that there are as many versions of me in the room as there are people. Even though they've only just met me, they've already formed an image of who they think I am. And all those images are different. If you could look inside the heads of everybody there and see what kind of story each of them had spun about me, you would discover that no two were alike. One thing's I remind her of her cousin who travelled round the world and was always going on adventures. And other things, I remind him of a schoolmate who was always unbearably stubborn. Some people experience me as humble and obliging, others as a closet know-it-all. Depending on what their previous experiences have been, they simulate completely different stories about who I am. They project their own understanding of the world onto me and believe that what they're seeing is the truth. Try to observe what happens when you meet a new person. It could be the man sitting next to you on the train or the girl serving you in a shop. Pay attention to how quickly you form an idea about who this stranger is. You only need a single glance to start spinning your first story about them. You have a notion of their personality, an idea about how they would react in various situations, and a sense of whether you find them likable or not. This is a completely natural response. We are social animals, and relationships are crucially important to us. As with our ability to simulate the future, our ability to predict what others will do has been one of the most important factors in our survival, and so we have developed an astonishing ability to tell stories about other people.
from the most scant information, we can construct a whole personality. A pair of pink shoes, heavy makeup, and a tendency to chew gum with her mouth open, and boom, we've already got a profile. But just like all our other interpretations of the world, these stories can only come from one place. Us. From our own map of reality. From our own understanding of the world and our own experiences. To put it simply, you could say that you've never actually met another person. The only thing you've ever met are your stories about them. And these stories are the real cause of your emotional reactions to them. As such, two people can have the exact same experience of a man bursting into their office, but have vastly different emotional reactions to it, because their interpretations of the situation and the meaning they ascribe to it are different. Our bodies don't distinguish between our external and internal realities. For our bodies, there is only one reality, the one in our minds. It reacts to everything going on in our head, even if that's just interpretations or simulations. When I sit in my favorite chair and think back over an unpleasant conversation I had the day before, my emotions respond as if I were still in the middle of it. Because my mind is focused on it, it's what my body reacts to. Just as my experience of being bitten by a dog on a Paris street ten years ago can make me afraid of a dog that's sleeping peacefully in its basket today. The past has nothing to do with this particular dog, but the sight of it activates a series of internal images from back then, and they are what's actually frightening me. This is why I can't do anything but react. In fact, there would be something wrong if I didn't react. After all, that's what my nervous system is designed to do. To help me adjust to the world I was born into by using my experiences to select the most appropriate response to what's going on around me. So if my experience of dogs is that they are dangerous, it's only natural that I would be afraid when I see one, even if it's sleeping peacefully. However irrational they may seem, all our emotional responses, our frustration, our anger, our fear are in reality signs that our nervous system is working. They are the body's way of preparing itself to deal with the challenges it thinks lie ahead. I once found myself sitting in Munich airport with a friend of mine when he was suddenly gripped by a panic attack at the prospect of boarding the plane. There was a violent storm and he thought the aircraft was too small. He was afraid of panicking when we got outside, and his head was filled with images of losing all composure and self-control, getting put in a straitjacket, and carted off to a Bavarian mental hospital. When your head is filled with those kinds of images, and you truly believe that they are about to happen, it's hardly surprising that you react. Quite the contrary, reacting is exactly what we are supposed to do. The problem wasn't his emotional reaction. That was just a reflection of what was happening in his inner simulator. The problem was in his mind. The beliefs in his map of reality were making him simulate a terrifying future which his body subsequently responded to. If we don't realize that what seems like the real world is in fact created by our own inner reality, we human beings will always be beset by a fundamental misunderstanding believing that the source of our joy and pain exists outside of ourselves. 
If we believe this, we will also believe that the way to solve our problems is to tinker with the world until it fits our story about it. But trying to change reality to solve our problems is like trying to get rid of dirt on a projector lens by cleaning the screen. It doesn't matter how hard we work or how much time we spend, so long as the marks we are trying to remove are actually due to something on the projector, our efforts will be in vain. It's only once we turn our attention to the projector itself that we are in business. And I'm not saying don't act in the world. I'm not asking you to be a doormat, not at all. What I'm saying is that you'll respond much more efficiently when you're coming from a peaceful place in yourself, when you're coming from a place of clarity and connectedness. If a man comes bursting into your office and starts telling you off, your reaction to him will be very different if you see how frustrated he is and feel empathy with him rather than feeling threatened and attacked. His apparent anger has nothing to do with you, not even if he thinks it does. And when that's clear to you, you can meet him in a completely different way than when you feel you have to defend yourself and push back. Suffering is not efficient. It doesn't help. It doesn't feel good for you or your surroundings. And when you believe your stories, you suffer. When you don't believe your stories, you do not. It's as simple as that. And when you don't believe your stories, you become free. Free to be happy, free to be at peace, and free to act in the world in a way that has real impact rather than making yourself the victim of your imagined circumstances. Our ability to come up with unique beliefs and use them as the basis for creating the expanded reality we live in is at the heart of what makes us human. But as I've said several times, it's also the cause of all our problems. Other animals simply are. They relate to reality without taking a stance about whether it's good or bad, right or wrong. If there's food, there's food. If there's no food, they die. And if they get eaten by a lion, that's just life. They do experience pain in the sense that their body sends signals that something is wrong when the lion sinks its teeth into them. But they don't suffer. Suffering is something extra. Suffering is what you get when you tell stories about pain. During the 90s, there were several studies showing that certain advanced mammals, such as monkeys, dolphins and elephants, have a degree of self-consciousness and are able to miss each other, indicating that they may be able to create narratives. As such, they may also be capable of suffering, although this is a highly debated issue. But however it may be, no other animals come close to being able to tell stories on the level of human beings. If I've broken my leg, for example, and am lying in my bed, I'm suffering, even if I'm not in any physical pain at the moment. I'm enmeshed in a long narrative about feeling sorry for myself, about how tough my life is and how terrible my situation has become. Other animals don't do that. They just make sure they are lying in a position that doesn't hurt, waiting until they feel better. Which, based on what we know about how the body heals, is probably a far more efficient strategy than holding ourselves in a state of constant stress and worry. Nothing is achieved through suffering. On the contrary, suffering only clouds our judgment. 
How many wars have been started over hurt feelings, pride, or honor? How much pain has fear and desire caused our world? Your world. Your wars. Here's a war for you. The train is 20 minutes late. This is the kind of thing we say when we are standing on the platform. But what does it really mean? Most people think it means that the train should have been here 20 minutes ago. But that's actually kind of crazy. How is the train supposed to be able to arrive before it arrives? It's impossible. No train has ever arrived at any time other than the one it actually arrives at. More generally, in fact, nothing has ever happened at a time other than when it actually happens. The train arrives when it arrives. There was a signal failure on the way and queues at the main station. So how could the situation possibly be any different? The train is reality, and reality is what it is. The problem is that there is also a schedule, a piece of paper that says when we would like the train to arrive. And when it appears that this schedule doesn't correspond to reality, that reality isn't behaving the way we had hoped, we are faced with a choice. Do we want to believe in the schedule, or do we want to believe in reality? If we choose to believe in the schedule, it can only end badly. No matter how much we argue that the schedule should be right, no matter how much energy we put into defending it, no matter how much the other passengers back us up, no matter how much we complain, grumble and argue, the train isn't going to get there until it gets there, and we have embroiled ourselves in a war with reality that we are forever doomed to lose. There is an old Taoist story about a man who had a good horse. One morning, when he awoke, the horse had escaped its enclosure and disappeared into the mountains. When the other villagers heard about it, they immediately felt sorry for him. How terrible that your horse ran away, they said. But the man just shrugged. We shall see, he said. And he was right. The very next day, the horse returned with a beautiful stallion it had found in the mountains, and suddenly the man had two horses instead of one. The other villagers appeared again and were happy on his behalf. How wonderful that now you have two horses, they said. But the man just shrugged. We shall see, he said. The next day, the man's eldest son decided to try and break in the stallion. It threw him off, and he hit the ground so awkwardly that he broke his arm. How terrible, said all the villagers. Now you have no one to help you with the harvest. But still the man just shrugged. We shall see. And again he was right. The following week, the emperor sent an envoy to the village, drafting all the able-bodied young men into the army. They had to take part in the war against the enemies of the empire. But the man's son was allowed to stay at home because he wasn't in a fit state to fight with his broken arm. You're so lucky, said the villagers, but as always, the man just answered, We shall see. There is only now. This now, right now, is the only reality that exists. And in itself, it's never good or bad. How could it be? It simply is. The horse that ran away, the leg that broke, in itself, it's not a problem. The problem is the narrative I weave around it. The problem is everything I imagine my broken leg will stop me doing. The problem is that I think it shouldn't be broken, that I'm comparing my situation to what things would be like if I didn't have a broken leg. 
I'm simulating a future full of crutches, pain, and physiotherapy. A future where the others go on holiday without me, where I never get to play football again. A future full of complications and problems. And so I suffer. But not because of reality. None of our problems, and I really do mean none of our problems, are caused by reality. They are caused by the stories we tell ourselves about reality. It's what goes on inside our internal simulator that causes the stress and suffering we feel. Always. When you're standing there on the platform, waiting for the train, in reality, there is no problem. The sun is shining. You're safe. You're fed. You're dressed. In that moment, everything is perfectly fine. The problem is in your thoughts. The problem is what you imagine will be the consequences of the delayed train. But that's not real. That's a simulation. Maybe it's perfect that you arrive late. Maybe you will avoid getting run over by a car. Or maybe this delay will allow the people who are waiting for you to discover something amazing that they wouldn't otherwise have thought of. We can't know. But you have locked yourself into a specific story, a specific perspective on the world, and it's spoiling this perfect moment for you. It's causing you to go to war with reality. And it's taking up all your energy, so there's no room for that brilliant idea to enter your mind that would be coming in if you weren't so busy with all of your complaining. It's never reality that's the problem. It can't be, because reality simply is. Test it for yourself. Try to find a problem in your life that isn't due in some way to an internal narrative. When your children haven't tidied their rooms, is it the mess that's the problem, or is it your beliefs about the mess? They are irresponsible. They don't respect me. They'll never learn. Pay attention to all the interior images you see, all your projections of the past and future, all the rules in your map of reality that you feel aren't being kept. They are all just stories. When your boss criticizes you, is it what he says that's the problem? Or is it the stories you create? Or when the computer doesn't work properly? Or when it rains on your wedding day? Or when your flight is delayed? Or when your project falls through? Or when your team doesn't perform well? Or when the tiles fall off the roof? In themselves, these are all things that simply are. They are reality. Tasks to engage with. It's only when they are coupled with your inner narrative that they become an issue. Your husband walks through the room, and you tell yourself a story about how nice he is, or how sexy, or how irritating. But what does that have to do with him? His mother will have a different story about him. His sister will have another. His colleagues at work have theirs. His best friend has his. Who's right? Your story about your husband is yours. Just as with everything else in your reality, you see him through the filter of your map of reality. Just as with everything else in your reality, he's your projection. The only thing that's really going on is that a man is walking through the living room. Everything else, everything else, is a story you're superimposing on that. The world simply is, ineffably so, like a Rorschach blot. It means nothing in itself. It's only when we look at it that it begins to resemble something. A disrespectful partner an unreasonable colleague, a favorite cup, a field of wheat. And if our stories are painful, we suffer.
we feel stress. We respond with so-called negative emotions, and we very often react with a display of unconstructive behavior. The challenge is that we cannot get rid of our stories simply through an act of will. It's not possible. We don't have conscious access to this part of our operating system. We cannot decide to believe what we don't believe or to stop believing what we in fact do believe. We must go another way. And one such way is the work. And so, finally, having understood these three crucial elements, the concept of the map of reality, that our worlds are a simulation, and that our physical and emotional reactions are simply the natural responses to that simulation, we are now ready to turn our attention to the work itself. That is the topic of the next episode. It's called How the Work Works, and it'll take everything we've seen so far and use it to demonstrate how this simple and effective tool operates. Until then, I am whatever earnest you make of me, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode on this journey into how the mind works and how to end suffering. The work of Byron Katie is copyrighted by Byron Katie International. You can read more on www.thework.com. For more podcasts like this one, visit theartofbeinghuman.dk. And feel free to contact me if you have any questions or comments to this podcast. You can find my contact information at theartofbeinghuman.dk or you can simply send an email to ernest at kavm.dk. That is ernest at kiloalphavictormike.dk. Thank you for listening.